Chris Landry here with a look at the college football week that was and look at some issues that uh, we're going to examine, including the administrative overview of college football. We're going to take a look at uh, what could come out of the SEC Big Ten Alliance, the potential effects of the National Labor Relations Board ruling at Dartmouth, and go back and look and see where the NCAA began to sow the seeds of their current problems. That is uh, what we've got on tap for you. A reminder, you can get more detailed breakdowns on the world of college football, as well as the NFL at LandryFootball.com. Take advantage of our scouting season offer today. LandryFootball.com. Also subscribe, like, and share the Landry Football Podcast Network on Apple, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. So the SEC Big Ten Alliance up first. I don't believe, like most people do, that Greg Sankey and Tony Petiti, the commissioners of the SEC and the Big Ten, are plotting a full breakaway with their conferences, at least not yet. It's more that they want to throw their weight around in the looming reconfiguration of college sports. Sankey, who came up through the NCAA model and remains largely loyal to it, seems unenthused by NCAA's president, Charlie Baker's proposal in December for a new subdivision of schools that can pay their athletes 30000 per year. Petiti is a college sports outsider who may be more willing to think outside the box than most NCAA lifers. Another note, unlike in the past, Tony Petiti and Greg Sankey have a good relationship and go back a ways, and so the working relationship is a lot better, which is the reason why they're working in unison here. Look, those leagues needing a functioning NCAA, all of these leagues need a functioning NCAA more than many might know or believe. Uh, you can't have a playoff format that leaves out the Big 12 or the ACC or Notre Dame. It would lose credibility. And so just having a conference where you the two teams play, that's it, it, not enough. Uh, now, I do think there's potential expansion down the road that maybe would have larger conferences, but I don't think there's even the appetite for that right now. But I do think this doesn't mean that they won't use their leverage as two power conferences secure the most favorable terms possible in the new CFP deal in 2026. They're certainly not going to let a two-team conference in like the Pac-12 dictate how many leagues, if any, get automatic berth. For years, college sports has been in the state of limbo where everyone recognizes the system is broken but no one is stepping up to do anything about it. This was the SEC and the Big Ten taking it upon themselves to lead the troops, which don't have much choice but to follow their lead. Another interesting development in college athletics was the NORB ruling at Dartmouth. And it's hard to say just yet, given the narrow scope of that ruling, it was a regional NLRB officer granting the members of one private school basketball team the right to unionize. Dartmouth invariably will appeal the national uh, the national NLRB board and hope for the same outcome as 2014 when an NLRB officer in Chicago issued a similar ruling for Northwestern football. The school appealed, and while a union vote did take place, the results were sealed and the ballots ultimately were destroyed when the board overturned the decision. But the entire college athletics enterprise has changed dramatically since that initial Northwestern decision, which came pre-O'Bannon, Alston, NIL. Shortly after 2021, uh, the, Aust the Alston decision, the NLRB general counsel 
issued a memo to field officers that basically said, yes, they're employees, all but inviting other athletes to follow suit. Should the NLRB uphold the Dartmouth decision, every athletic team at every private university could file the same unionization position and expect it to be granted. There is already a similar case underway in Los Angeles involving USC. A world where private school athletes are employees and public school athletes are not would be untenable for the NCAA. Further muddying the waters um, is the ongoing Johnson versus the NCAA federal lawsuit dealing with the same issue, which may be years away from finality. If you want to handicap the NCAA's chances, however, know that part of its defense is a 1992 case that ruled against prisoners arguing they're entitled to minimum wage. I fail to see how anyone could argue with a straight face that college athletes aren't employees. Given it says right there on the IRS website, anyone who performs services for you is your employee if you control what will be done and how it will be done. Given schools, coaches, uh, that, that given the fact that schools and coaches control athletes' practice and travel schedules and call mandatory meetings, I think it's self-explanatory. But that doesn't mean there won't be dire consequences. If athletic directors suddenly have to carve out millions from their budgets to pay hundreds of athletes minimum wage, it's not going to come at the expense of the salary um, of their most important coaches. They inevitably, inevitably will slash their number of non-revenue teams, reduce roster sizes, et cetera. Many smaller schools have had to cut sports entirely. That doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. The law says what the law says, but it's going to be extremely messy when it does. I hearken back to some of the problems with the NCAA and can't think what could have been. The NCAA's fatal mistake was not proactively, because college athletics, head by the, headed up by the NCAA, has always been reactive, not proactive. They mistakenly were, were not proactive in addressing name, image, and likeness at some point in the three decades or so before the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit. I can remember back as far as the early to mid-90s listening to players questioning why they weren't getting money from the sale of their jerseys that were in storefronts. And, uh, in fact, you can go back in basketball. The Michigan Fab Five basketball team were saying just the same thing in the 80s. Had the NCAA leadership exhibited more foresight and self-awareness, I know they never do, it would have come up with a sensible system in, say, 2000, early 2000, that granted athletes a cut of a licensing revenue from the use of their likeness in various products, a la every pro league. It would have given them a better chance to instill and enforce common sense regulations without drawing the ire of politicians and antitrust attorneys. Because now, if you deal with the issue, more university presidents continue to insist that big-time college sports were not a commercial enterprise. And so the NCAA's lawyers just kept racking up more billable hours trying to convince judges allowing athletes to make money would be a sin upon academia. It's, it's been a lost cause. They've lost every lawsuit. And so having some foresight and understanding that this was the path that was likely going to go down instead of burying their head in the sand would have been a better way to go. 
The other stuff like big TV deals, realignment, college football playoff, that would have happened regardless because the NCAA lost its standing in those markets back in 1984 Board of Regents case. It's been every man for himself ever since. In theory, college presidents are the vanguards of the conference membership. And at any time, they could have said, sorry, no, but we're not going to make our students travel 3,000 miles to play a Tuesday night volleyball game. But television networks whose sole responsibility is to please their shareholders have a way of swaying college presidents who find themselves incapable of turning down money when it presents itself. So when there's a 3,000-mile trip to play a Tuesday night basketball game, it's fair game because it brings in money recognizing that you are going down the path where it's strictly business or largely business and not having the foresight to realize that you were going to have very creative attorneys represent players for the opportunity to get a piece of that pie, not realizing that 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 was coming down the pike was the biggest mistake they made it made down the road. They could have headed this off could have put in a system in place that what would have still paid them, but would have been more organized. Now that the horses are out of the barn, quite frankly, it's like herding cats trying to stop NIL. I don't know if legally you can do it. You could put another system in place, but I don't know that you're going to stop NIL. And NIL was supposed to be naively, Many people thought it would only be for players that were currently at the universities. Of course, it was going to be used for recruiting. We are they are players that have no NIL marketability whatsoever. That are being NIL is being used as a slush fund through the collectives to play to pay players through recruiting. It's the reality that we due to the lack of foresight has put us in this point. And I think this is where college athletics has to look at a system that we're going to have to figure out how it's going to regulate the whole process. And major major college football operates a lot differently than what I would call mid-level college football. And then certainly they are a lot different than the FCS level. That's a look at the some thoughts from this week in college football, uh, a reminder, check out LandryFootball.com for more of the latest information in the world of football, college football, NFL breakdowns. We got it for you. And also subscribe, like, and share the Landry Football Podcast Network. I uh, appreciate you joining us. Talk to you again next time, everybody.